Hey, thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. Here at Reveal, our mission is simple. Find God, find others, and find yourself. For more information, visit us online at revealvineyard.com. Well, uh, we are uh, on uh, a series called Join the Revolution. Uh, And I did some reminiscing uh, this week. I was looking back at our beginnings uh, we met at the Ultra Star Theaters uh, when our church first started. It was June 29th, uh, 2008, when the lights were fired up and a soundboard came to life. And, uh, you know, we had our first church service and the sweet smell of popcorn was in the air. And there's nothing like doing church with the smell of popcorn. And uh, We did communion once with popcorn and Mountain Dew. I'm joking, Okay. Uh, but uh, there's just there's something there's something special about that. I mean, my wife and I still go to the movie theaters, and we walk into the uh, theater that we house church on. And we always make a comment. We were like, "It's just it's crazy coming in here. I feel like I want to preach to everybody there." And um, and then you know we came here about a year and a half later, and it was odd. You know, not uh, it was odd to have church without the smell of popcorn and your feet sticking to the floor. Uh, you know, but I went back and I looked through the first message that I gave as pastor. Um, one of the pastors at Reveal, and uh, I said, talked about how Reveal needs to be, have open doors, that we need to be a place for everyone, uh, where everyone who walks through our doors is equal, where uh, the wayward can find direction, and where the downcast can uh, be lifted, and where the oppressed can be released to live in freedom, and where the spiritually broken can find wholeness and be restored, and that is when Reveal is at its best. It's when the church, the local church, is at its best. Let me read something to you from Bill Hybels who said this. He said, I believe there is nothing like the local church when it is working right. Its beauty, he said, is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It uh, uh, comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources For those in need and opens its arms to the forgotten and the downtrodden and the disillusioned. It breaks the chains of addiction and frees the oppressed and offers belonging to the marginalized of this world. Whatever, love this part, whatever the capacity for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and for wholeness. He concludes, still to this day, the potential of the local church is almost more than I can grasp. No other organization on earth is like the church. Nothing even comes close. I've, I've read that statement numerous times, and I read it again this week, Thursday, uh, going over my message, sitting, uh, it was in my living room, and I had tears in my eyes, and I said out loud, this is there alone, I said out loud, I love the church, and I, I love the church, I, not just reveal church, I love the church that's under the banner of Jesus Christ. I, I always have. When I was 14, I went to Moon Valley Community Church and walked in as a young man and there was something that was electric. I didn't know it at the time, but it was God who was, who was pulling me in and, and, and drawing me close. And even from a young age, there was something about the church that I, I could not get enough of. There was something about living in community with other people who are following Jesus. There was something about serving in something bigger than myself, being a part of reaching the community and, and serving and, and stepping out of my own selfishness to give myself to other people. And I, I was hooked on it. And every time I read Heibel's explanation of the church, I look at it and I think, 
That's what we need to be. Reveal at its best is, is, is that. that. That's what, what, what the church needs to be. We've been saying in the series that we're part of that Jesus never came to establish another re- a religion. That first century Rome was heavily polytheistic. There were all kinds of gods and goddesses and deities to choose from. And Jesus did not step into that moment to give another religious opportunity for those who were already overloaded with religious opportunity. Instead, he came to start, as we've been saying, a revolution. And a revolution is when there is an overthrow of power. And Jesus came to overthrow the kingdom of darkness and in its place to establish firmly the kingdom of God. And his primary message was about the kingdom. He said, the kingdom of God has come among you. Not a physical physical location, but the rule and the reign and the authority of God has drawn near to you. And then he demonstrated what the kingdom looks like. That the kingdom breaks chains of addiction and frees the oppressed and offers belonging to the marginalized. And that is the church at its best. When the local church is at its best and demonstrating the kingdom message, whatever the capacity for human suffering. The church that demonstrates Jesus and the kingdom message has a greater opportunity and a greater capacity for healing and wholeness. And I still believe that today. Today we're going to look at uh, the early church, continue our, continuing our exploration of the early church. We're going to be in the book of Acts. If you don't know, Acts simply means the acts of the early church. And we see the church in its humble beginnings. We see its success and we also see its challenges. We said last week that 120 people to start the church, 120 believers in Jesus, rushed the streets of Jerusalem all with the same message. And their message was that God answered the question, what do we do with the sin that separates us from God? They all came with a a common response, with a common uh, to answer uh, the, the question, our deepest question of how do we find peace with God? What do we do with the things that we have done that separate us from God? And their answer was Jesus. And they went to say that it was Jesus who was crucified. And they said he was crucified not a hundred years ago or even a year ago, but he was crucified 50 days ago from when they came into the streets. He said, and he was crucified not a hundred miles away or even 10 miles away, but right outside of these city walls. This is the Jesus who, who we speak of. And then they said, and that you know of him. And so they came with this message. And this message on day one of the church opening its doors, so to speak, 3,000 people embraced the message of the kingdom. Within a week, over 5,000 people embraced the message of the kingdom. And this was the role that the early church was on. Then the temple authorities got bent out of shape and they arrested the 12 disciples and threatened them with physical harm. Matter of fact, had them flogged and said, you must stop with this message of Jesus and the message of the resurrection. And their response was, Well, it was telling, Acts 4. They said, as for us, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. Go to that next slide there, please. We cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. doesn't matter how much you threaten us, what you say to us, what you say about us. We can't keep quiet. And then we know a Pharisee named Saul decided to take upon himself to end this whole movement of the church. And so he starts to crucify, or he starts to persecute, excuse me, the early church. He put Stephen to death, who was the first martyr. But then Saul had his own come-to-Jesus experience. You can read about it in the book of Acts where he heard the voice of God and he was blinded by the light. Matter of fact, they wrote a song about it in the 70s. 
Blinded by love. Okay, never mind. Some of you will get it later. And so they wrote this song about him. And he's literally, he's blinded by the light. And he has a conversion where he comes to Jesus. His name is changed from Saul to Paul. And the once persecutor of the church now became the biggest proponent for the kingdom message. He wrote a third of the New Testament. And he did not take his message to the Jews, but he left Jerusalem, Judea, and he went out and took the message to the Gentiles and to Greece and into Turkey and uh, you know, m- much of, of those locations. And so it is in this backdrop of great success of the church moving forward that we're about to see a catastrophic uh, event that could have crushed the local church. Matter of fact, it could have moved the church from being a a movement of a revolution to simply a religion. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15. We're about 20 years after the resurrection, so some time has gone by. And you're going to start to see the slide of a revolution turning into a religion. I think it may be telling and may uh, speak to you. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I love your word, and I love how it uh, instructs and teaches us, and today let it do exactly that. Would our ears be open, would our spirits be open, and would we invite you to come and speak to us in whatever way that we need? And would you speak beyond my words? Would you, Holy Spirit, speak to each person what they need to hear? Would you bring encouragement and restoration and would you bring hope and would you speak into situations that seem dire and would you speak life into us for we know that your resurrection was not just life for you but you have come to give life to us and we want to embrace that life as you said you've come to give us life abundantly so would you speak and would you move us we pray in the name of Jesus amen First thing I want you to know is that a revolution's natural slide is always toward religion. Week one, we talked about uh, the difference between religion and revolution, and we said a religion is comfortable, but a revolution is painful. A religion will always be about what's comfortable for me, what's good for me, what feeds where I'm hungry, what, what, what makes me feel good about myself, and a revolution is painful. You're going to be called to do something that is outside of your comfort zone. Religion is personal. But a revolution is communal, meaning your relationship with Jesus, yes, is personal, but its expression should be communal within the church body, and then we as a community go out into the community and continue the kingdom message. A religion is sanitary. It has rules and it has an answer for everything, but a revolution is often messy. It's made up as you go. Religions are safe and revolutions are risky. Religion is passive and a revolution has a way of being offensive. What that means is that for the local church, our tendency will always be to slide away from the kingdom revolution and slide into or drift into a religion. The reason is because we, it's our bent. A religion is easy and it's comfortable and it's low risk and it's safe and that's where we will slide unless we are aware and if we are not fighting against it. And so after much success of spreading the kingdom message of of Jesus, Controversy, controversy hits the church. And the controversy was pretty simple. The question was, who should be allowed in? We're 20 years after the resurrection. and The question was, who should be allowed in to this? Because there were the Jews who are now believers were saying, shouldn't there be a waiting period? The question was, how good should someone have to be before they can be embraced by the rest of us? What should they go through? What hoops should they jump through? What should their life look like before they're allowed in? Should there be a waiting period? Uh, How how good do they need to be before we embrace them? And this had the potential of swinging from 
a revolution into a religion because they wanted a nice set little box that was comfortable and sanitary. We know who's in, we know who's out, and if you want to be in, you're going to live by our rules. And so we're going to pick up uh, the story in Acts chapter 15. I always encourage you to bring your Bible or look it up on your smart device if, uh, you know, just to, to follow along. Uh, remember, I, I hope that you read God's Word not just on Sunday on the screens, but that you are a self-feeder. You will move far greater, far more quickly in your spiritual development if I'm not the only one feeding you, but you're feeding yourself. So Revelations, or I'm sorry, Acts 15. Uh, we'll pick up. So certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. Antioch's about 300 miles away from Jerusalem, border of uh, Turkey and Syria now. Um, and so uh, they come to uh, Antioch where they were teaching the believers. Now, these were Jewish Christians who left Jerusalem, and they're teaching the believers, but they're Gentile believers, meaning they're non-Jewish believers who have come to accept the kingdom message, and now they are followers of Jesus. What happened is that these Jewish Christians from Jerusalem make a special trip, and they believe that Christianity wasn't even called Christianity back then. Matter of fact, the first time Christianity Christians were referred to as Christians was in Antioch. And these Jewish believers, uh, they believe that Christianity was just an extension of Judaism. And so they took their beliefs and their traditions of being a Jew, and they tried to morph it into the teachings of Jesus. And so they made a special trip down to these new believers and said, hey, you're not, you don't have the whole story. There's some things that you have to do if you want to be saved and if you want to follow Jesus. And they did that. It's because it's, it's all that they've ever known. It was familiar. That's what religions do. It, you will bend it. You will drift it into what's familiar to you, to you and what is comfortable. And so in this case, the Jews saw themselves as superior, and they wanted to maintain that superiority. And so they went to the believers and said, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to become like us. You have to be a Jew first. And so we'll see what happens in the rest of verse 1. They said, unless you are circumcised. It's a little painful. According to the customs of Moses, taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. No, they go to these, now these are, these are new believers, non-Jews, non-circumcised, and they go to the Gentiles and they say, we are glad that you are following Jesus, but you're not really following Jesus. The only way you can follow Jesus is if there's a little plastic surgery that takes place, and then you can be embraced as part of the family. Now, men, imagine. Imagine the faces of these guys. They're like, you want, there, down there. Oh, heck no, right? I mean, come on. The, 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 their faces, had, there had to be some squirming going on as these guys are saying, you have to be circumcised. And so this, this the, the early, you know, if this was the case, imagine the, um, the membership class of the early church. It would be all women, right? Then I would be like, oh, honey, you go. Tell me what it was like, right? And so here's the situation. You got these Jews coming down saying, hey, glad you're following Jesus, but in order to be saved, you need to be circumcised. But here's what they were saying. Please hear this part. This is key. They're saying before you can be part of us, you need to conform to us. Before you can be part of what we're a part of, you need to live like us, look like us, behave like us, and after you do, then you can be with us. Now this created a problem for Paul. This, verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute. Sharp dispute. And debated with them. Now, 
Paul got involved because these Gentiles were largely followers of Christ because of Paul's uh, actions and his missionary journey. He, you know, spread out from Judea and was preaching the gospel, and he went to the Gentiles. And so Paul had a, 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 a place in his heart for these individuals. He traveled about, and he started little ecclesias, or little gatherings of believers. And these were the people who were now being told, Paul didn't give you the full message, he only gave you part of it. And so Paul came into uh, dispute over this, because what Paul taught was that Jesus alone saves. Ephesians 2.8, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, it's nothing of yourself. Paul told them that you can't do anything to earn God's love, you can't do anything to earn God's salvation, it's purely by the grace and the mercy of God. But now all of a sudden you have people coming in who are saying, no, 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 you need to memorize a few things, clean up your act, perform a ritual, and then you can be part of our community. You need to look like us, you need to act like us, you need to live like us before you can belong to us. Maybe you've experienced something like that at some point in church. Maybe at some point in your life, hopefully not, but that you have been pushed out of the church because you felt that you couldn't get into the church because somebody or a group of people said, you don't look exactly like us or live like us, and so you can't be part of us. The church has been guilty, put this next slide up, the children have been guilty of, of this pattern, that you must believe and you must behave and then you can belong. And if you've been around the church for a while, it kind of makes sense. That you must believe what we believe, and then you must behave the way we behave, and then you can belong. But is this really the model of Jesus? Wasn't Jesus the one that went to guys like Matthew uh, and, and said, hey, just, just come and see? Wasn't he the one that just invited people? Why don't you come and check it out for yourself? I know you don't believe the way I believe. I know you don't even behave the way I behave. But you can be around us and you can have community with us because if you are around us long enough, Jesus believed, you will come to believe and then through that belief, I'll transform your heart and then the quote, behaving can come. And so maybe as a church, we've kind of got this wrong where it's believe, behave, belong. That's what these, these early followers of Christ were saying is that if you want to be part of the community that we are, then believe like we believe, behave like we behave, circumcision, and then you can belong. And the church has lived like this for so long that we've, that we've pushed people away. I'm not saying we do away with the believe or we do away even with the behaving part of, of how you know, a Christian is supposed to live. Faith without works is, uh, is dead. But if we front load the gospel, then we push people away. And that was Paul's problem. Paul says, look, I came in speaking grace. I came in speaking mercy. And you're front loading the gospel saying, before you get grace, before you get mercy, you must do X, Y, and Z. And Paul said, you have missed it, man. And so there's this dispute that is, is taking place. And so uh, that we'll continue there in uh, the rest of verse 2. He said, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem. That's where this stuff was coming from, uh, uh, to see the apostles. So we're going to see Matthew and Peter and all those other guys, James and John, and the elders about this question. So they're going on a road trip. Remember when, you're, uh, when you were younger and you were acting up in the car and dad would say, don't make me come back there. I remember when I was younger, I swore I would never, um, that's, and I said it to my own kids, you know, it's like, you look, don't make me come back there. Well, Paul had a don't make me come back there moment. Paul's like, all right, you've pushed it too far, I'm coming back there, and Paul and Barnabas, they make the trip to Jerusalem to try to set things straight, verse 3 and 4. 
The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, uh, they told how the Gentiles had been converted, and this news made all the believers very happy. They were saying, look, the kingdom message is spreading. When they came to Jerusalem, uh, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So in other words, they're like, look, we've got to have a serious conversation, but before we do, let me tell you what God has been up to. They said, look, we've been planting churches and Gentiles have been believing and there's been signs and wonders and God's on the move and people are embracing the kingdom message and lives are being changed and churches are being started and amazing stuff is happening. Why are you telling people they must be circumcised? And Paul's like, look, I haven't front-loaded the gospel, but somebody coming from your midst has. Paul's like, I have preached Jesus and him crucified and somebody is preaching Jesus and you circumcised. Close, but not the exact same thing. And so there was, this, this, there was tension going on. Part of the church wanted to form it into religion. And Paul's like, we're not going that direction. And so the conversation uh, continues. Verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said. Now, the Pharisees, always the bad guys, right? The Pharisees are the ones who put Jesus to death. They're the Klingons of the Bible. Okay, not a lot of Star, Wars, Star Trek fans. That's okay. Uh, uh, but so they're the bad guys. Now, we pass by this verse often, but it's interesting to me that the Pharisees are the ones who put Jesus to death. They opposed him at every turn. And yet now, 20 years later, some of the Pharisees are actually following Jesus. They had a conversion within their own, that God can convert even the hardest of hearts, but old habits are hard to break. And so they carried with them all of this Jewish tradition. And they were the ones, most likely, were sending these people out to tell people that they must uh, be circumcised. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to do to Christianity what they did to the Jewish faith. They wanted faith. They wanted to create rules and regulations that clearly described who's in and who's out. And so listen to what they said. These are the Pharisees. They said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and uh, be required to keep the law of Moses. So when we think the law of Moses, we think the Ten Commandments, but it was much greater than that. There were 613 laws that needed to be kept in order to be seen as righteous and to be holy. And they're saying to Paul, Paul, get back on your boat and tell these Gentiles that in order to be a follower of Jesus, they must follow the same 613 laws that we followed in order to be a Christian. That in order to be part of the Jesus Club, they need to first be part of the, the, the Moses Club. So get back out there and, and, and they need to hear the rest of the story. And once they've aligned themselves, once they believe like we believe and behave like we behave, then they can be part of us. But until that happens, keep them out. And so Paul's like, well, first, that, you know, that, that's not going to happen. This sounds harsh to us, but we do the same thing. The church as a whole has been guilty of, of settling into our own version of Christianity that said, unless you fit into our version, you're not welcome here. Believe, behave, and then you can belong. And we need to challenge that path because that thinking has pushed the same people that came into the church has pushed them right back out of the church. I'm not saying that belief is not important. It's critical. But Jesus embraced people long before they believed. So the continues. Verses uh, 6 through 9. The apostle and the elders met and considered the question. After much discussion, Peter got up and he addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips... The message of the gospel and believe. In other words, Peter's saying, look, I've been telling the Gentiles this too. 
God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did for us. Peter's saying, look, you don't even know the heart of, this, of these people. You're looking at some of the things that they do that disgust you as Gentiles, and now you are ready to extrapolate their behavior, and now you think you know their heart. But Peter's saying, you don't know their heart. I mean, how many times have we lived like this? How many times have we said, I don't know your heart, but I know the markings on your body. I don't know your heart, but I I, I know your music. And I don't know your heart, but I know how you keep your yard. I don't know your heart, but I know you park your car on the street when the CCNRs clearly say you can't park your car on the street. I don't know your heart, but I know your dog barks nonstop. I don't know your heart, but I know how your children behave. And Peter's saying the same thing. Look, you don't even know these people. You think you know their heart, but you're taking a few of their actions and you are judging them. And we fall into the same trap. I don't know your heart, but I will know the way you dress and I will carry that out to think that I know you. And Peter's like, stop it already. He says this, verse 9. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts as well. Here's the people, these Gentiles know nothing of the Jewish commandments, nothing of Jewish rituals, and yet God, through his mercy, did the same thing for them that he did for you. Verse 10. Now then, this is important, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles, or the new believers, a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? I'm going to need to go really quickly to finish this. In other words, the the Old Testament law was meant to show us that we cannot keep these 613 laws on our own, and it was meant to show us that we needed a Savior, that we can't be righteous on our own. It was impossible. And so Peter's saying, why would you want to put upon the Gentiles something that you have not been able to do yourself? He's like, Jeremiah, in the back, you're a good Jewish boy, right? You grew up Jewish. How are you doing keeping all those 613 laws? Not too good? Why would you ask them to do something you can't do? And Aaron... Do you sin? I saw you doing a sin offering in the temple. Why would you ask Gentiles to do something you can't do and you were raised in it? And so there's the tension going on. Verse 13. When they finished, James, now James is the brother of Jesus who didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah early on in life. He came to that conclusion later. Matter of fact, if if you've ever doubted if Jesus was God, his brother believing he was God should be proof enough because think of it. Think of your older sibling. What would they have to do to convince you they were God? Right? I mean, it has to be something pretty amazing. So James now believes, and James says this, verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I've heard the debate. I know the standard. I get it. I know there's tension. But bottom line, if this movement, if this revolution is going to continue, we need to remove every obstacle that keeps people from God. And the doors need to be swung open. And it needs to be come and see, come and check it out, and come and experience it for yourself. And no wiser words have been spoken over the church. I mean, look, this is for us. We need to remove every obstacle that keeps people from coming to Jesus. Now, he's about to say, here's what we should ask them, all right? This part gets a little weird. We'll go through it quickly. Verse 20. He said, instead, we should write to them. In other words, Peter's like, remove the obstacles, but hear what we should say. Tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and meat uh, of strangled animals and from blood. In other words, here's what he's saying. Look, tell them to not offend their Jewish believers. 
Because the Jews are getting mad at them because you're not living like us. And, and, and so what, tell them to not offend the Jews either because we have to be in this together. We're on the same side. So all we should tell them is, look, don't do things to upset the Jews. Jews, don't do things to upset the Gentiles. We're on the same team. So go and tell the Gentiles this eating thing is important to the Jews. Stay away from it. It's better for everyone involved. You'll be wise to not do these things. And then stay away from sexual immorality. I know in your pagan religions that was all smiled upon and it was all good, but don't bring that stuff into the church. It's a cancer and it's really a sin against your own body. And if you would do well, if you could just avoid these two things. And then it goes on to say that they sent some leaders back with a letter to them that basically said these two things. Uh, The letter said, listen, we heard that someone gave you some wrong teachings and and forget about it. We're lifting that off of you. It's not what God wants of you. But here's what we are going to ask. Don't offend your Jewish brothers and sisters and uh, stay away from from sexual immorality. And then it says uh, in, in verse 31, the people read it and they were glad for its encouraging message. In other words, the men were like, no surgery, right? It was good news for them. Now, here's what I'm going to leave you with. I want to try to bring this back home to us and to reveal. Every local church will struggle with this drift or this slide. And when the local church has got it wrong, we've pushed people away. And when the local church has got it right, we have changed the world. And so reveal. Here's things that we must be aware of. Reveal must avoid the drift towards insiders and away from outsiders. The Jewish believers, they were focusing on other Jewish believers. Let's forget about the Gentiles. Let's just kind of take care of ourselves. And if they want to be part of us and let them become like us. And every church over time moves towards the insider thinking. And we need to fight against it. And I understand why it makes sense because we try to do community together. We try to live together. It's easy for a pastor to say, we'll take care of the people that are paying the bills. But listen, it's not the model of Jesus. Jesus always took the 12 and said, it's not just about us, it's always about us going to them. And we as a church have to fight against becoming an insider movement. That, meaning, that means the music isn't always about you, that everything isn't about me. Listen, I've spent far too many years in front of a monitor leading worship. And I always put it on my right side. And my hearing is going. I've lost frequency. And there's times when I come in for worship, it hurts my ears. But it's not because it's too loud. It's because I'm getting old. And I can't go to the sound guy and say, hey, lower the volume to make me feel better because that's an insider movement. And we can't be an insider movement and reach people for Jesus. And so I want you to be happy. I want you to find community. I want you to love your church. But ultimately, the way we love our church best is realizing that the church is not just for us. That we are here in surprise to reach out into our community that other people can hear the kingdom message. And if they do not, we failed. We failed. And so we have to push against this insider mentality. Number two, we need to avoid the drift toward law and away from grace. I don't mean theology that you have to work your way to heaven, you know, do works to get into heaven. The natural drift that will weigh down a church is by establishing categories and policies. In other words, here's what happened. The category was Gentiles. The policy was they must be circumcised to be part of us. When Jesus went and got Matthew and said, Matthew, come and, come and hang out with us, 
Peter and you know, the other disciples, are, they're, they're a little weary of it because they were thinking, all right, category, tax collector, policy, he must change his ways before he can be with us. And then they're going into Matthew's home, and now they're really upset because category, huge sinner, policy, stay away from sinners. And Jesus is like, I got this. Woman caught in adultery, category, adultery, policy, she's stoned. And Jesus is like, no, no, that's not how we're rolling. When churches get overloaded with categories and policies, the church becomes neat and it becomes clean because there's an answer for everything. But rather than categories and policies, Jesus was more about conversations. Woman caught in adultery. It wasn't about your category, adulterer, policy, you're going to be stoned. In other words, it was let's have a conversation about what you're doing and let me release you to never do it again. Our church needs to have more conversations and far less. I never want us to fall into categories and policies. I'm not saying we water down the gospel. I'm not saying there's not truth. You know me. I'm all about this. But conversations are difficult. Categories and policies are easy because we say, hey, look, follow this page on our website. This tells us exactly what we think about what you're doing. And until you stop doing this, we don't want you as part of this. It's just not the model of Jesus. And so we need to be careful not to overload with categories and policies because a policy and a category removes the humanity, it removes the person, and they just become something behind their sin that we have no attachment to. Conversations mean I'm investing in you. And then the last one. We need to avoid the drift toward persevering rather than advancing. When you start a business and you have nothing, it's easy to risk it all because you have nothing to lose. But once you have payroll and and, and things are moving forward, your aversion to risk becomes more and more because you have more to lose. Well, it's the same way as a church. When a church starts and you got eight people in your home, hey, risk it all. Who cares? But when a church starts to grow and there's bills that need to be paid or there's staff that that needs to be paid or there's ministries that we're invested in and and four soon to be five schools and there's India things that we're doing and and committed to starting a school there and there's people here that count on revealed to be their church well now all of a sudden it can become really easy to say let's just preserve what we have and let's not risk a revolution is always about risk and so I've told you that you know we're risking now I'm pushing hard to get us out of this space and into a space of our own. Did a walk with a general contractor on Monday through the fresh and easy space. The good news is a lot of money is already into that building. They're pretty close to opening. That's good for us for tenant improvement. The bad news is when we went up on this soffit and banged our head on some pipes and stuff, the HVAC was ripped out of the building. So we have some challenges now to go back to the owner and say look here's what we need for tenant improvement dollars and you have to put HVAC in because regardless if you're going to rent it to anybody nobody's going to take it without an HVAC system so you're going to have to do it anyways so we're going to be meeting with an architect getting some rough plans to try to move forward with that you need to be praying for us on that I don't know ultimately where it's going to land but I'm telling you this as I've told my wife and I've told the staff I'm willing to bet the farm on it because if we're not going to risk, then we're just going to persevere. We're just going to kind of preserve what we have. And eventually, we're not getting any younger, and we're all going to die out, and Reveal's going to die with it. We have to reach people for Christ. And so we're looking to take a step and looking to take a risk. But the natural drift is always towards persevering and not towards advancing. So how can we stay away from these three drifts? Here's what I ask of you. Three commitments. First, that you would be bold. Be bold 
uh, in your inviting. Uh, hopefully you have some of these Crave cards or some on the tables on your way out. Uh, better yet, scan the QR code in your bulletins. You have a digital version. Go to our website. Pick up some of our invitations. Be bold in your inviting. Be bold in how you live. Be bold in how you give. Be bold in how you serve. All of us should be a part of this crazy thing called the kingdom revolution. Number two, error on the side of grace. When we are unsure what Jesus would do, when we're unsure how to handle this in clear uh, biblical direction, I would prefer we err on the side of grace. When you have relationships in your life that are being torn and, and you're, just, you're ready to just go at it, I prefer you would err on the side of grace to keep the conversation open to see what God might start to do. Because aren't you glad that God erred on the side of grace for your life? Imagine if he didn't. I'm not saying, I'm never saying we ignore the truth in the Bible. I'm never saying we water down the gospel, ever. It's just not, it's never who I've been. But there are times that it's like, oh, well, well, Jesus, God, how do you want us to handle this? And, and it's like, man, we could go either way, and, and it's just it's not really clear. Error on the side of grace. I think God is honored in that. And then the last thing, remain open-handed. Listen, reveal. It's time for more risks. It's time for more growth. It's time for new ideas. It's time for new ministries. And it has to come from you. It can't come from me. You need to have ministry ideas. You need to begin to put into practice what you're passionate about because that's how we reach a community. If it all flows through me or a few people, we will die. I can't do that and this. I will lead us. I will cast vision for us. But at some point, you have to say, I'm signing to be part of the revolution. And what that means is I'm going to be actively engaged in what the kingdom message is about. Open-handed, not closed-handed, with everything that God has given us. And if we do that, I'm convinced our best days are ahead of us. If we don't, we just kind of limp along. I get to the point of retirement. You get to the point of retirement. Somebody dies. Church just dwindles. And then we have a good old, hey, remember when moment when we're all in heaven? And Jesus is going to be like, you could have done so much more. Pray with me. Yeah, there is so much at stake in our little church. And I don't want us to grow for the sake of numbers. I want, I want us to be a messy church for the sake of people coming to Jesus. I want people coming in that we're not entirely sure what to do with. I want people coming in who are so far from God, but we're going to invite them in to be part of the community, that they would hear the kingdom message and that they, they would belong and then they would believe and then you would begin to transform their hearts. I want a church that is messy with people flooding in. Would you give us that opportunity? Would you cast out a net and would you draw people, the unchurched, the unsaved, in to our doors, that we would have an opportunity to love them like no one has ever loved them. We would have an opportunity to embrace them and to welcome them in and to not push them aside and not marginalize them, but, 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 but that re regardless of whatever the capacity of human suffering is, that we, reveal, would have a greater capacity to bring healing and wholeness because Jesus is flowing through us. 
I don't know what is more exciting than that possibility. Give us that opportunity. Not me, give us, we are reveal. Call us to something greater and to something higher. This week, I pray boldness upon our church, boldness in how you live, boldness in how you speak, boldness in how you invite, boldness in how you serve, boldness, and do something crazy for the kingdom of God. I bless you to step into that moment. Smile upon us. Shine upon us your light and your love and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Next week, we close out this series because the following week is Easter. Uh, I hope you come back. I'd love uh, to see you invite someone. Uh, If you're a guest, I'd love to meet you down front. If we can pray for you at all, let us pray for you. Be bold this week. Look forward to seeing you guys next week. God bless you.